Welcome to uh, an impromptu big question. We normally have one of these big questions around about once every two months and uh, we're planning for it to be a Thanksgiving service this afternoon for little Lydia but with the weather and all of that kind of thing that's just been put back into the new year. So it seemed just a great opportunity to deal with one of the big questions that people have huge problems with. Well, Christmas is coming, isn't it? You know, you wander around, you can see Christmas trees appearing in windows, in shops, uh, and we've got a Christmas tree. So Christmas trees have appeared here as well during this past week. Shopping is being planned. People are getting excited. There's the build-up. There's the schools build-up. Colleges build-up. Everything's kind of gearing towards uh, this big Christmas event. I mean, this year, we've even got snow in advance of Christmas, which is, I think, I don't remember the last time it happened. I'm sure it has happened some point in my lifetime, but I don't remember it. It's amazing, isn't it, the way we seem to be having uh, these kind of things uh, preparing us for Christmas. You would expect, though, wouldn't you, that in a church that we are we're wanting to deal with not the Christmas of now, but we're wanting to relate the Christmas of today to the very first Christmas. That Christmas which happened, which we are, we have the opportunity at this Christmas time to remind ourselves that Christmas is here today because of an event that happened 2,000 years ago when a baby was born in a fairly small, relatively insignificant town to a completely insignificant peasant girl. There was no major fanfare from a human perspective. There was no massive uh, news that was portrayed to the whole of the world as though a great leader had been born. And yet at the same time, when we read the historical account of the Bible, the history of that first time, we realize that in various places it did shake up society. It certainly shook up Jerusalem, and the king, who was uh, King Herod at the time, was rocked by the news that Jesus had been born. He didn't know his name. He knew that a baby had been born, and he knew that some men from a particular part of the world had remarkably turned up. He was surprised by it. So let's get a few things kind of out the way, because I guess that if you're here for the first time and Maybe, maybe the Christmas message is a relatively new thing for you or you've not really thought about it much, but you've heard many people uh, talking about it in different ways. Let's just kind of clear up a few things. Firstly, let me say it's pretty likely that we've got the date wrong. It, it probably is that we've got the date wrong. It's also true that the church down the years hasn't always made it such a big thing as it is now. In fact, it would seem 
historically as though in the first years after Jesus, maybe the first century or two, perhaps three centuries, it wasn't a massive thing. It has certainly grown in significance over the years. It's also true that like many other Christian festivals, as the message of the Christian faith swept through the world in the first uh, millennia after Jesus, it's also true that many of the pagan festivals were kind of subsumed, sucked into the festivals of the Christian church. So you might hear somebody say, ah, yeah, but you know, the thing about Christmas is it's actually a pagan festival. And I would say, well, yeah, yeah, you're probably right in terms of a date, in terms of something being uh, kind of mutated into a date where we now remember uh, Jesus being born. One thing I would say is this, though. None of that, none of that changes that first event, does it? Yeah, we might have picked up the wrong date. Yeah, we might have uh, grabbed another festival as a point in the year to recognize it because people were already celebrating. All of those things, yeah, they're absolutely true that those things might be the case. But none of it changes the fact that on that first Christmas, a baby was born to a, a, in an insignificant place to an insignificant uh, peasant girl, and yet it has rocked the world. That one event has changed the world. One of the accounts that we find uh, in, in the Bible, and one of the claims that the Bible makes is that the mother of this little child, who was named Jesus, was a virgin. Mary had not had sex before she had Jesus. Now that, in human terms, is a startling claim, isn't it? You've heard the phrase, uh, all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> uh, you've also heard the idea that Everything is ultimately connected to something. I would say this, that everything in the Bible is ultimately connected to the event that happened 2,000 years ago. And the claim that is made that Jesus was born of a virgin, as dramatic as it is, is actually at the very center of the Christian faith. It is that big, it is that important, and therefore we have to think about it. We have to consider what it is that is being said. Everything rides on this event. Everything rides on this event. This claim is so huge that it literally makes or breaks the Christian faith. Let's we'll see how that works out in just a few minutes as we work it through. So the first thing that we want to ask is, born of a virgin, is it a ridiculous claim, or is it necessary for the gospel, the faith of the Christian, 
and the message that is proclaimed through the Bible. What is it? Which one is it? Is it necessary or is it ridiculous? The first thing that I want to say, I'm going to give three reasons here. The first thing that I want to say is that this is not a surprising event in biblical terms. It's not surprising. I mean, it was, it was surprising for Mary. It was surprising. It was a shock. It was surprising for her betrothed husband, something which was way stronger but similar to being engaged. Stronger but similar. It was a shock to him. He didn't know what to do, and he was encouraged to still marry her. It was just mind-blowing for those two people. But it wasn't a shock from a Bible point of view. Around about 730, 750 years earlier, there was a man by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah was, um, he was one of God's spokesmen in the Old Testament. They were called prophets. Somebody who spoke on behalf of of God. Does that mean that he just kind of worked out what to say? No, actually, what it means is that God used men in the Old Testament and they were prophets who spoke words that were given by God to them. They were the voice piece, the mouthpiece, if you like, of God in the world. Isaiah was a prophet and 700 or so years earlier he wrote this. Here then, O house of David, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years ago. First thing I want to say is really important in terms of necessary that one of the reasons that it happened the way it did is because this fulfilled what God had said was going to happen 700 years ago. Now, we could go into a lot more detail and see that it wasn't just that one thing that was fulfilled about Jesus, but there was a whole myriad of things that happened in the life of Jesus that were the fulfillment of what God had said was going to happen hundreds of years earlier. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't know really. I can't be sure what is going to happen in the next week. Now, we were planning to have a very different service this afternoon to the service that we are having this afternoon. We can't plan things, can we? Things are outside of our control. And yet one of the things that we see in the Bible, one of the ways in which God wants to communicate to us, uh, and one of the ways he presents himself to us, is you need to understand, he says, that I am a God who is able to say, this is going to happen, and I can make sure that it does. That's remarkable, isn't it? 700 years can pass... And something that I said was going to happen actually does happen. God wants to say, I am remarkably powerful. I have supreme authority. And Jesus is the fulfillment 
of everything that I said was going to happen. Now, in a way, doesn't that give a, a kind, if it's true, if we accept that Jesus actually was born in this way, doesn't it give an incredible authority, a credibility, not just to Jesus, but actually to everything that was written before him as well? Doesn't it make us think, well, if God is able to do that, and there's no doubt that the book of Isaiah was written those hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it was in plentiful circulation, being used by the Jewish people for hundreds of years before Jesus. Now, it's not something which was dragged out two, three hundred years after Jesus. It was in regular circulation. In fact, Jesus quotes from it again and again and again and again. He says, look, I can do this. I am, if you like, one of the reasons that you need to consider this as potentially true is because it fulfills things that were said earlier. One of the things that God wants us to understand is that he does things in ways which lead us to know that it is absolutely him. Born of a virgin. One of the things that comes out up again and again and again in the Old Testament is this. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send somebody to save you. Through the Old Testament, we have seven women who can't have children. And then it's almost as though God takes his people right to the precipice with these women. And then like that, he makes it possible for them to have a child who becomes an almost savior. Somebody who kind of gets there. Somebody who's almost fulfilling the role, but not completely. And you know, that's one of the things that in these prophecies, God is wanting to prepare us for. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a savior. There's going to be all of these saviors through the Old Testament. We think of Samuel. Uh, we think of uh, Samson, uh, uh, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, all of these men who become saviors, whose mothers were unable to have children until the last moment. And then God says, but do you know what? I'm going to bring the ultimate savior from the ultimate barren woman. Have you ever thought of it like that? Why have we got seven women who kind of produce almost saviors? in the Old Testament because God is paving the way for the ultimate barren woman to produce the ultimate saviour. Prophecy fulfilled. Second thing is this. We have to ask the question, but why? Why a virgin birth? Why would, why, why would God do that? Isn't, isn't there another way? Another way that God would do this? Why would he do it with a virgin birth? 
Second reason is this. Now, to be honest, we could go on and on and on and on with lots and lots of reasons. We could write books about why the virgin birth, so I've just picked out a few. <laughs> Second one is this. Because of our broken humanity. There's a verse in, in a Rome, the book of Romans, and it says this. In fact, it connects the Christmas story, in a way, with the very beginning of the Bible. The crisis where suddenly humanity rebels against God, goes its own way. It's called sin. Turns its back on God. There's a verse in Romans that says this. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you see the problem? If death spreads and sin spreads from one man and one woman, one child to the next child to the next child, it's a kind of continuity, one after the other and the other, it's just there, it's written almost into our spirit, well it is, written into our spiritual DNA. We are rebels against God who are facing death. That's what we are. Do you see the problem that is faced? How can God create a saviour in this world when everyone who is born has that spiritual DNA encoded into them, which is shattered, it's broken, it's rebellious. Every child that comes into the world has got this broken spiritual DNA. And then, amazingly, God says, I'll tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to kind of start humanity again. How can you start humanity again? How can you create another human being? It's just Jesus was just born, wasn't he? Well, yes. But he was born by breaking the chain. Isn't that remarkable? It's the one thing that makes, necessitates, one of the things that necessitates a virgin birth. It breaks the chain. The chain. Yes, there's a continuity in that Jesus is a man, but there's a break in the chain. It stops and starts again with a, a new humanity, a new Jesus, a new man. Somebody who breaks the chain, who is not continued in that process of death through spiritually broken DNA. Now, okay, now just stick with me for this, because this makes sense of something in the future of what Jesus says, or what the Bible says. Because further on in Corinthians, it says this. If anyone is in Christ, he 
is a new creation. It's kind of as though for you and me who believe in Jesus, we are able to step out of our spiritually broken DNA and become members of a new race, a new creation. Something which is now perfected in Christ. Because he starts the process again. First Adam is broken. The second Adam is successful. He's, he's triumphant. So that those who believe and trust in him become part of something new. So first thing that we've got is born of a virgin because it fulfills prophecy. Second thing that we've got because it deals with our broken state. The third and the final thing that we've got is this. Because I think that, yeah, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing, those things. But even they take a back, back seat, I think, to this one. It's the way that God decided to come into the world. It's the way that God decided to come into the world. That might not sound remarkable to us, who've perhaps been used to the Christian message for 2,000 years. But for the first hearers, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing that God would even think of coming into the world. Because after all, the God of the Jews was the great unseen God. The God who was out there and above. He was known as the unseen God. The God who was living yet never seen. The God who if we look at, we will die. And then for every other religion... The gods are somehow out there. Look at the multitude of the gods of the great Greeks and the Romans. Gods who intervene in people's lives and battle against each other and, and have some sort of supreme power. Gods who are elevated. Gods who are seen as big and strong and powerful and supreme. And God says, I am going to break into this world as a little child, as a baby. There's a verse right in the very middle of, well, pretty much the middle of the Bible, Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah says. I think in lots of ways, that preempts the first Christmas. Salvation belongs to the, world, to the Lord, how? Salvation belongs to the Lord by the Lord determining to come into this world to save people. You know, that is at the very center of the Bible. That's why I would say that this claim that is made, that God coming into the world, born of a virgin, 
is at the very center. Everything stands or falls by this. Paul says that the resurrection is what is the stand or fall message of the Bible. If Jesus didn't rise again, he says, then our preaching is in vain. And I would say, yes, absolutely. It's absolutely true, that. But the only way that the resurrection could have taken place is if it was truly God who came into that manger in Bethlehem. If it truly is God who came into the world. That is the only way in which the resurrection is even possible. Because of what we read in Romans. Because everybody has sinned and everybody is going to die. And yes, Jesus died, but because he was without sin, he rose again. Why? Because it's God in the world. So I want to close with a, a couple of things. That is huge claim. In fact, we read it in Isaiah. That the, the words that we read were this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Isn't that incredible? That's why the Christian message is so remarkable. Because it actually claims that God isn't just out there distant, hidden away. It claims that God came into the world. God with us. We all come from different backgrounds, different experiences. And, and, you know, the conversations that I have down through the, through the past weeks, months, years, one of the things that seems pretty clear to me is that we have a remarkable ability of putting a really kind of brave face on things. And yet, when we peel back the layers, there's, there's kind of lots of stuff going on underneath all of our skins, isn't there? There's lots of fears Lots of tensions, lots of uncertainties. Lots of things that for all of the bravado, lots of things that scare us. Maybe you've had experiences of faith. Maybe you've had experiences even of Christianity. That it's just seemed kind of oppressive and authoritarian and scary and just too much let me ask you this what is God like how does God want to engage with you in your fears in your concerns and we see it at Christmas he enters into the world without any threat there's nothing less threatening, is there, than a little baby. And God decides to come into the world like that. He decides that I will engage with people who I have made. And the first engagement I will have with them will be me being the 
ultimate, non-threatening. That's the starting point. Can I encourage you, if you are fearing the idea of coming to God, maybe there's stuff in your life that you think, I know about it, God knows about it, I just want to keep a huge gulf between me and God because God is scary. (laughs) He already knows. But one of the characteristics that he says is my starting point is to start without being threatening. He says, come to me. I will engage with you. Come and let us us talk together. Come and let us, let me unburden you. Come and let me engage with you. Come and share with me. There are so many pictures in the Bible which repeatedly give us a starting point of God, which is I am here. But that little baby didn't stay a little baby. Because if God just stays weak and non-threatening, we're in trouble. Because he needs to defeat something. He needs to become threatening ultimately. He needs to become threatening to sin. He needs to become triumphant over wrongdoing. He needs to become the triumphant judge and justice carrier into this world. So he says to us, through his coming into this world, come to me. Let's start on that basis. Now let's deal with all of the other stuff. I mentioned earlier that Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important aspect. It's true. And it's founded on the fact that God came into the world as a little baby. God came into the world as a little baby. There have been many kind of, I was reading a few this past few days, many kind of arguments about could it be a virgin birth, you know, etc., etc. You know, arguments against it, you know, that. That pales into insignificance. If Jesus rose from the dead, which was witnessed by 500 people, then this is possible, isn't it? You know, this is kind of a vindication. It's vindicated, rather, by what happened later on. Can I encourage you, if you don't come along regularly, please continue to come along with us. It's been great to see you this afternoon. But can I encourage you, if some of this stuff is a question to you, if you've got more questions, please talk to us. More than happy to chat through. 